Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. The 38th talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on May 14, 2017 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Jack Crabtree and is being made available to you by Gutenberg College. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. Contributions to Jack Crabtree may be made at www.soundinterp.wordpress.com. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 14, Translation, Installment 2017, Number 2, accompanies this talk. Please note the Cain and Abel passage to which Jack refers near the end of the teaching is Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. We're continuing in our study of the book of Hebrews. We've reached uh, what in your normal Bible is chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, which is a fairly well-known passage. Um, I want to say a couple of things orienting us to what's going on in Hebrews 11 before we get into the specifics of a text. It's an abrupt change from chapter 10 to chapter 11. It's obviously a transition to a whole new segment of the, of the book of Hebrews. And in this new segment, what is he doing? I titled it in my translation, uh, the general significance or the, the well, it's going to be largely exhortations to persevere in belief because that's how he ended the last section, that he took us to Habakkuk and he talked about how the people who will have life rather than death, the people who are going to be granted life rather than death, are those people who persevere in their belief. So belief is the issue, and he picks up on that. He springs board off of that to have a whole new section now of the, of the work, the book of Hebrews, where he's going to devote it to the nature and the significance of belief. He's going to take us all the way back to Abel and kind of trace different events and different people uh, through our Old Testament right up to just past the Exodus. And he, uh, by doing that, he's going to highlight for us what belief, I, I'll, I'll qualify this in a second, but what belief looks like, or sometimes he's not teaching us anything about what belief looks like. He's just showing us from an event in the Old Testament that belief is significant. In other words... It's through belief that we find approval with God. He's going to highlight that a number of times. And he's going to talk about different ways that belief manifests itself. Now, the thing that, the thing that gets confusing about Hebrews 11, if, you were, if, like me, you were raised in Christian culture and your understanding of biblical theology was kind of bumper sticker-like, was kind of... Uh, um, slogan-esque in its nature, it's, it's hard to understand why Paul could write this chapter bec- for a variety of reasons. He talks, sometimes he, he says, I want to t- talk about belief, and he doesn't talk about belief. He talks about obedience. And then other time, and, and then nowhere... And this is very striking. Nowhere in the whole chapter is Jesus ever mentioned until we get to the very, very, very end. So we all know that it's belief in Jesus that is the ultimate condition for who will receive life and who will receive death. And not a single person on the list here believed in Jesus. And yet they're being presented as an example of exactly the kind of thing that we need to persevere in if we are going to receive life. So how are we to understand that? Well, throughout Paul's writing, and I, and I would argue all the apostles, but uh, Paul in particular, Paul especially, when he talks about belief, he doesn't mean the act 
of believing fundamentally or primarily, it's not the act of believing something that is the basis upon which we are forgiven and granted eternal life. When he talks about belief, what he's talking about is a certain inward mindset, uh, an attitude, an orientation that goes deep into who I am. It's how I am oriented to God and what God is doing in the world, the things of God. How are, how are you relating to that? What's your attitude toward that? What's your outlook on that? What's your response to that? A response that goes deep, uh, deep within who you are and really governs everything that you do, everything that you think, and everything that you say. Well, that's a mouthful to... And in fact, not only is it a mouthful, but it's hard. How do you put your finger on something so inward and so complex and so multifaceted? So Paul, taking his cues from the Old Testament, a really important verse for Paul is, and Abraham believed God and it was uh, counted to him. It was accredited to him and led to his righteousness or dikaiosune. That, that's huge for Paul. So taking his cues from that, Paul tends to uh, use the shorthand of talking about belief when what he means is a person who's an entirely and fundamentally different kind of person than every other human being out there. Instead of being ungrateful to God, they are grateful to God. Instead of being suspicious of God, they're willing to trust God. Instead of being uninterested in God's purposes, they are vitally interested in God's purposes. Instead of disregarding God's promises, they embrace God's promises. I mean, we could go right down the line. All of those things make, make a, a, person like, a person like Abraham distinctive in this world. Well, that's who these people are on this list in Hebrews 11. They're the kind of people that God has gone to work on from the inside out and is so transformed them, the Bible calls it sanctified them, has so, well, uh, let me just start over. Chapter 11 is about um, describing people who have been sanctified in the same way that someone like Abraham has, and each of them in their own way manifest and gave expression to this thing that was going on inside of them, where They were positively inclined toward God and the things of God instead of being negatively inclined toward God and the things of God. And that's the thing that we have to ultimately, that we have to persevere in. Now, typically, there's going to be something that God has promised or that God has declared or that God has asserted that we are going to believe because we are positively inclined toward God. But not always. And we're going to see an example, if we get that far today, we'll see an example early on of someone where you look at the Old Testament account and you go, I don't know what the dude did. (laughs) God was happy with him, but I don't know what the dude did. I don't know why he was happy with him. So, uh, and then Paul is going to speculate, well, I'll bet you it's because he knew that God was there and that he was a rewarder of those who seek him. That's that's what made him pleasing to God, because that's a bare minimum. You have to do at least, at least that much. But all that's to say, as we go through this passage, we have to recognize the, the, the complex concept that is being represented to us when Paul talks about belief. He doesn't mean the simple mere act of believing. I mean, every, every time I think about the simple act of believing, what was that? What was that movie? Uh, a few, a few good men, where the uh, Kiefer Sullivan character. Am I getting this right? I believe in God, the King, the King James Bible, and the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. Damn it, <laughs> or something like that. I mean, it takes more than being willing to make an intellectual commitment to a set of ideas. That's not belief. That's not the belief we persevere in. We persevere in being people who have been made tender toward their creator. No longer are we hardened against him, steeling ourselves against him, stubbornly 
expressing our autonomy against him, but somehow God has crept into our life and tenderized us, made, made us tender toward him, responsive to him, receptive to him. We want God's will to be done. We want God's purposes to be accomplished. We want to be a part of those purposes. It's that mindset, it's that attitude that marks the child of God who's going to receive life rather than death. But the shorthand way of describing that, particularly in this section, is belief. Or usually, in most of your translations, it's faith. And that's the other thing I want to say before we get into this this section. We have a concept of faith that is very, very common, typical, widely widespread today, not just in Christian culture, but in the whole, the whole culture, secular culture as well, a concept of faith. And basically this concept of faith is um, believing something even though you don't have any good reasons to believe it at all, and somehow it's a huge and important virtue that you believe it, even when you, especially because you don't have any good reason to believe it. You're believing it just because you're a believer. <laughs> you're believing it because you're exercising faith. And you are, you are digging deep and uh, attaining to faith which your mind could never get you to. And somehow that's supposed to be some virtue. It's supposed to be some quality that God honors and respects and is going to grant life to. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that today before we go on. The reason that seems plausible to us is because we've grown comfortable with the idea, for example, if, if someone comes along and tells me something, give, gives, me a, gives me a story of something that happened in the world, and I repeat that to someone else, and they say, you believe that? Um, and then if they press me, why do you believe that? Um, we, we'd probably talk about the trustworthiness of the person, how much we respect them and trust them as a source, and we'd have various things that we would say. But if they're going to be particularly skeptical and going to press you hard, they're going to say, oh, so you just take it by faith, right? You're just taking it by faith. And we probably wouldn't push back. We would know what they meant by that. Or we would think that we know what, we, what they meant by that. Basically, what they're saying is, you're simply trusting the testimony, the statement of someone else. You have no independent basis on your own right for knowing that that's true. You've simply had to take it on the word of someone else. That, well, that's what's going on here. And we'd say, well, yeah. Yeah, I'm having to take it on the word of someone else. And we feel comfortable saying, I'm taking it by faith. Okay? Now, I'm going to argue, unfortunately, growing comfortable with that way of describing it has proved to be very misleading. And so I'll see if I, I can explain. There, there are other things as well that we are comfortable if people say, well, you're, just, you're just taking that by faith. Uh, an example that Christians often use, they bring a chair up here and, and ask you to come and sit in it. And if you come and sit in it, they say, now, why, why, why did you feel comfortable sitting down in it? How did you know that it was going to support you? Well, you were just taking it by faith, weren't you? We could, we could multiply examples of ways in which we describe uh, knowledge that we have Knowledge, knowledge that even confident knowledge that we have as somehow other than and different from reason, oh, it's by faith that you have that knowledge. Okay, the fact that we use our language that way is not a problem. That, that's not problematic. We can use our language any way we want to. Unfortunately, in our culture, a very slight little leap got made in our culture where it no longer is you don't have any private independent source of information or basis 
you don't have your own personal basis for knowing that that's true, you're taking it on the word of someone else, suddenly becomes, in our culture, you have no rational basis for accepting that. You just believe it because you like believe it. You believe it because you have chosen to believe it, but you don't have any rational basis for believing that. Now we have a wedge that's been driven between faith and rationality, faith and reason, faith and human intelligence. Somehow faith is a way of knowing that doesn't involve me as a rational, intelligent human being. It's something else happening. I'm a religious person. I'm a spiritual person, um, whatever, but we're, we're in a whole new ballpark. We're not talking about knowledge any longer in the normal sense. We're talking about a kind of knowledge that comes independently of any human reason and intelligence. Well, that's the, that's the move that has been made in our culture. And, uh, okay, Along, early on in the church, that move got reinforced by the church fathers, the, the so-called church fathers. Um, the church fathers would define faith, basically, as the church who knows the truth, who is the guardian of the truth, and who knows what it's talking about, comes along and tells you what's true. It tells you what to believe, tells you what doctrines to hold, what doctrines to embrace, If you believe those doctrines that the church tells you to believe, you'll be saved. You're a Christian, and as a Christian, you're going to be saved. If you reject them, then you are either a heretic or an infidel, and you're going to go to hell. But the virtue that you are practicing by being loyal to the church and what it taught you to believe was faith. They described that as faith. Eventually, in the Middle Ages, you have someone like St. Thomas Aquinas come along and he says, you know, there really are two ways of knowing theology. You can be like me, a philosopher. Uh, not, Not me, Jack, a philosopher. You can be like me, Thomas Aquinas, a philosopher, and you can use your reason. And in using your reason, you can make arguments that will persuade you of much of what the church has to and the Bible has to tell you. And you can get there by reason. But, you know, there are some things that are the truth of God that reason just can't get you to. The Trinity was one of them. The Eucharist was one of them. How how can this wine and bread actually be the body and blood of Jesus? That's another one. Uh, There there are a handful of things that, um, that can't be ever achieved through reasoning, argument, evidence, that sort of thing. You just accept it by faith. So you see what he's saying? It's contrary to reason, or at least it's other than reason. It may not be contrary to reason, but it's other than reason. And Aquinas said, thanks be to God that there are those truths that you can only know through reason. It's faith that saves you. If we could if we could reconstruct our belief in the truth by reason alone, we'd be damned because the Bible teaches us that we have to have faith to be pleasing to God and to be saved. Platonic thought, which also had an impact in the Middle Ages, Plato said a very, had a very simple doctrine. The higher the kind of thing that it is that you know, the higher kind of knowledge you have of that thing, that there's a correspondence between what you know and how you know it. So the highest being that exists is going to be known with the highest kind of knowledge. Now, what makes one kind of knowledge higher than another? The degree of certainty. So since, since in Christianity we're talking about God, you can't get to be a higher being than God, Therefore, if you know God, you are going to know him with the highest form of knowledge, 
namely 100% uh, irrefutable certainty, indubitable certainty, I should say, indubitable certainty. You won't have any doubts. You won't have any questions if you have faith. See, that's the kind of knowledge that got baptized as faith within the Christian church. That's the kind of knowledge that we're supposed to have about the matters that pertain to God. And I know that you, I know that you've had this thrown at you in your experience where you feel guilty if you ever experience any doubt of any kind, any uncertainty of any kind, any, any shakiness about any part of what it is that we believe, you feel kind of guilty because, well, that's, that's, that's weakness of faith, right? And the weakness of faith is risky and dangerous. People get sent to hell for, for not having faith. Well, that, that comes from that simple move of thinking that faith is somehow 100% indubitably certain and there is no shakiness or lack of confidence at all whatsoever. Well, it's all those kinds of ideas that are spinning around in our culture and in the history of Western civilization that we bring to a text like Hebrews chapter 11. And so all I want to say is cut it out. (laughs) Don't do that. Erase all that from your memory banks. Uh, We're talking about what Paul is talking about. We're not talking about faith as that concept has become entrenched in American culture and in Christian culture. And anymore, you may have noticed, I never use the word faith. When I translate the Bible, I always translate the Greek word pistis rather than faith. Uh, I always translate the Greek word pistis as belief rather than faith simply because I can't use the word faith without all that junk being conjured up. I mean, for me and and I think for, for you. So I highly recommend that you strike faith from your vocabulary. Don't talk about it. Don't let the word pass your lips. Get rid of it. Because what Paul is talking about is simple, ordinary belief. We either believe something or we don't believe something. And how do you believe something? The same way you believe... How do you believe something about Jesus or God or the gospel? Same way you believe something about anything else. Eyewitness testimony is part of it. Gut feeling is part of it. Intuition is part of it taking in all the data and all the evidence that comes your way through life experience, processing it in a way that you don't even comprehend that you're processing it, and coming out going, you know, that's, that's got to be the way it is. I know that's true. Well, that's not, that's not hocus pocus. That's how science has worked in the past. Sci- you know, the scientific b- breakthrough came from hunches that people had because they took in all this information and their mind, their intelligence, their rationality went to work on it and they saw the patterns and the order and they went, oh, I see what's going on here. And then it took them many years often to articulate uh, and be able to explain in formulas and theories what they saw in a split second, in in a hunch or an intuition. That's not faith. That's not another way of knowing. That's not inspiration. That's just the way the human mind works. So when we have a broad enough understanding of what reason and intelligence is, then, we, then it's easy to see that Paul isn't for a second trying to offer us another way of knowing when he exalts the virtues of faith, belief, he is, he is simply talking about we've been confronted with evidence and we've been confronted with scriptural arguments. We're either persuaded or we're not persuaded. If we are persuaded, then we believe. Does that mean we never have any doubts? Well, we sure do if someone calls into question my evidence 
or, or gives me a better argument against it or what seems to be a better argument against it, you bet I get shaky. You bet I feel uncomfortable. What if I got this wrong? Maybe I believed too soon or maybe I believed uh, too quickly. And we go back to the drawing board and we rethink, should I be believing this or shouldn't I be believing this? You do that enough times and you fortify your reasons, you fortify the evidence, you fortify your confidence in the argument, and you doubt less. Does that mean I never doubt? Well, no. I still might doubt. To doubt is human. In fact, to doubt is intelligent. If you didn't doubt, you'd never learn. You'd never move. You'd never learn new things. You'd never catch your mistakes. You'd never realize, I really shouldn't have been believing that. I should be believing something else. So doubt is not contrary to faith, to what Paul calls belief. Okay, Uh, let let me pause there. But all that's just to preface going into this. He's going... He's going to start every paragraph with, as to pistis, as to pistis, as to pistis, he wants to talk about what gets translated faith, what I'm going to translate belief. Every paragraph is devoted to telling us about belief. And it's crucial that we not be misled before we even get into the chapter. So any, any questions on any of that? Have you done any studies on how the word... Faith got chosen to, like the, got chosen to be the tran- word that we use to translate that. Uh, no, but I could guess. I mm-hmm. mean, I think it just comes from through the Latin that mm-hmm. pistis got translated as what fide or whatever the Latin is, and that and that the, I don't know why the English chose faith, but there must be some linguistic historical reason for that. Um, I was just wondering because. We still have, it's kind of archaic, but we still have this idea of keeping faith. Not mm-hmm. keeping the faith, but keeping faith with somebody mm-hmm. to remain loyal to them and trust them. Um, which does seem to harken back to, but I don't know, I'm wildly speculating because I don't know what the history of it was. But mm-hmm. this idea of holding fast to God in some kind of way, like you're talking about having an orientation that... It's deeply rooted, and it it has an impact on your priorities and your values and your decisions and such. Um, so I just wonder if, if in the past that word had more of a rich, appropriate <laughs> meaning, and it's gotten kind of changed. But. Yeah, I, I really don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I, I think we live at a time where a, a real number has been done on the distinction between uh, belief or faith and reason and it's hard to not read the bible through the lenses of modern right. modern times so yeah I, I mean when the bible is first translated it may not have been nearly the same kind of wedge between reason and faith that that we see today thanks somehow today when people when christians talk about having faith it's kind of like faith in in an outcome that something's going to happen like positive power, positive thinking kind of mm. thing. And as I understand it, your idea of belief is more belief in the God who will do whatever he wants to do. But the faith is kind of something I conjure up enough, and if I think hard enough and have enough faith, it will come out the way I want it to. Mm-hmm. But a- absolutely. Belief is much more in who God is. Yeah, a- absolutely. It, it's a knowledge of who God is, that leads that has certain implications about how I live my life. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the whole the whole power of positive thinking and so on is a direct result of this faulty view of faith, because it literally believes that I, with my with the force of my, I'll, I I don't know what else to call it, but I I conjure up this confidence out of the blue, out of nothing. I conjure up this confidence, and that confidence is going to somehow actually literally create reality out of the, out of the magic of that confidence that I have conjured up. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and I dare say there are a lot of Christians who have that concept of faith today. 
that we, we believe in God by faith means I conjure up the confidence that God is there. Well, do you have any reasons for that? Well, no, that would spoil it, right? I'm supposed to conjure it up out of nothing. That's what makes it faith. If I actually had reasons for it, then that would be a whole different gig, and that doesn't save you. That doesn't make you spiritual. That doesn't make you religious. It's crazy. It, it's diabolically crazy, but it is widespread in our culture. i just make the very quick comment. It strikes me that it's not really so much the English words as the way they have come to be used. Right. I mean, outside of Christian culture, I can think of places where the word faith would be used, where the idea behind it seems to me to be an appropriate and right one. It's, it's the theological baggage that's kind of been attached to that that makes it problematic. Yeah. I mean, I think outside that culture, you wouldn't have a problem translating it as faith in a, in a different... If, it, if the theological baggage wasn't attached to it, you wouldn't have a problem with it, right. I bet. Right. Okay. Well, let's, let's jump into the text then. Now, we already talked about paragraph 57. That's 11, 1, and 2. Now, belief is the underlying claim on the things that one eagerly anticipates the reason we can know of things that are not themselves seen. By it, indeed, our elders were commended. Okay, well, what are the things that one eagerly anticipates and the things that are not themselves seen? Well, what he has in mind here are things like an inheritance in the eternal kingdom of God, the fact that I am one day going to be a citizen in the eternal kingdom of God. I can't see that right? There's that, that's an invisible reality. It's, it's secreted away in the mind and purposes of God. I have no access to that. So how would I know whether I'm going to have an inheritance in the eternal kingdom of God? That's something that's not seen. I eagerly anticipate it. I confidently anticipate it, but I can't see it. So on what basis do I have confidence? Well, he says, your belief. Your belief is your claim on that inheritance in the same way that a title to an automobile is your claim on the automobile or your title to a house is your claim on the house. If you, if you need me to show you some tangible, concrete evidence that I'm the owner of the house, here's the title with all the appropriate signatures and what are those things? <laughs> Marks on them. Um, so here, here's, the, here's the thing. Likewise, if you need some concrete, tangible evidence that, that I'm a child of God, if you need that, then watch my belief. And I mean that in the broad sense that we were talking about earlier. What, what, what is my orientation toward God and the things of God? That's the concrete, tangible evidence that... that makes its way into expressing itself in my life. And that's, that's going to be the concrete evidence that I have this inheritance. What, confidence do, what evidence do I have? Uh, what's the concrete evidence that I have that I'm a child of God? The same thing. I, it, it, it has, it's the evidence of my belief. It's the evidence of my orientation toward God. So belief is the underlying claim that I have on things that one eagerly anticipates. It's the reason we can know those things that are not themselves seen. Now, he's, he's not talking about anything that can't be seen. He's talking about... That, that's where our cultural expectations make us misinterpret this verse. Um, what, what does our culture say faith is? Faith says is out of whole cloth, you're just making things up. You're just confidently believing things that you have no reason to believe. So we know things that are not seen because we know things that like aren't even true. We know them through faith. That's the way this verse often gets read. That's not what he's saying. The things that are not seen are not just anything that I, that I want to believe in. The things that are not seen are the realities that I am confidently expecting are going to be mine one day. I'm going to be forgiven. 
I'm going to receive mercy. Because I'm going to be forgiven and receive mercy, God is going to receive me into his kingdom, and I'm going to have everlasting eternal life in the kingdom of God in the age to come. On what basis do I have that confidence? Because right now, in my my life right now, I manifest belief. That's my title deed. That's my, the underlying claim, that, that the underlying reality that gives me a claim on those, on those invisible realities. Now in the next, oh, okay, then he says, by it indeed our elders were commended. Okay, what does he mean by that? He's, he's, he's anticipating what he's going to do in this chapter. He's going to go back to a bunch of old guys starting with Abel on, and look at all these old guys, and in every one of these cases, he's going to say we see, we see one simple truth in every case. The, the, their belief, the orientation of their heart that manifests itself typically in them believing a promise by God, commended them to God, commended them for God's favor and to God's acceptance. So in every case, that's going, to be, that, that's going to be the case. So their underlying claim on an inheritance in the eternal kingdom of God, the, those old guys, what was their underlying claim on that inheritance? Their belief. By it, indeed, our elders were commended. In the next paragraph, he says, now we have the closest thing that this whole chapter gives to a definition of the content of faith or belief. As to belief, we understand the ages to have been ordered by the utterance of God with the consequence that what is seen is not born of things that are evident. This is an incredibly important statement here because what he's saying is what, what does a heart of belief, where does it start? What is its foundation? It has a certain very distinctive understanding of reality and God's relationship to reality. It understands that reality is nothing more and nothing less than the will of God being brought into actuality. And he he goes back to Genesis 1. What did God do to make this reality to begin with, to, to get it started? God said... And it was. God spoke, and it came to be. It came to pass. Now, I don't think we're reading Genesis rightly or understanding Paul rightly if we think that he, his words had magical powers. It's not, it's not the magic of his words. The words represent his purposes. The words represent his will. God said, I want this, and that's what he got. So the reality that we live in is a script scripted by God. It's a story authored by God. It's a narrative that we're a part of that has for its narrator the transcendent God of all of reality. That's just who God is, and that's who we are in relationship to him. Now, what's the significance of that? Paul says the significance of that is that what is seen is not born of things that are evident. So what, are, what is seen, what becomes actualized in reality, does not, derive from, does not derive from the reality that exists. The future reality does not derive from the present reality. The future reality, like all of reality, derives from the speech of God, the will of God, the purpose of God, the authorship of God. The future is going to be what God wants the future to be, period. Now, why is that important? Because as I look at the present reality, it may not look like you can get there from here. That can't possibly be true Because look at all the obstacles that stand in the way. Between here and there, there are insurmountable obstacles. 
and we have to be reasonable, right? So uh, we have to be realistic. If you can't get there from here, then I can't believe that God's promise is going to come about. Uh, we'll, t- we'll take the example of Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. God, I'm childless. I have absolutely no descendants, God. How can I, how can I have descendants like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky? Don't you have to start with one? So since I don't even have one, how can I get from where I am to this promise that you've made about this great destiny that I have? It, it, it's impossible. What Paul is saying is that in each, every, in each and every one of these cases, what all of these guys understood is who God is in relationship to reality. God is the God who knows what, how reality is going to go. He knows what's going to take place. He knows what's going to transpire. He can tell you what's going to transpire. And it doesn't matter what today looks like and how impossible it looks like today could turn into that tomorrow doesn't really matter because reality doesn't come from what's today. Reality comes from the will and the purposes and the plans of God. Well, that's where faith begins. That's where belief in God, that, that's what's foundational to everything else that belief is is that I know who God is in relationship to reality. Now, that, that's a big one for us in the 21st century because we have been propagandized through our education and through our museums and our, you know, everything about us is telling us that all there is is matter and energy and a nexus of cause and effect relationships and tomorrow is only what's going to be the outcome of those cause and effect relationships that physics can describe and chemistry and biology can describe. And the only way we can get there is through the cause and effect relationships that rule our material world, our physical world. It's all there is, nothing else. And I, I dare say many of us as Christians, as much as we believe in God and claim to believe in God and so on, our working understanding, the understanding that we really have of reality, is the same one the secular world around us has. Yeah, it's just cause and effect, material, physical reality. That's the only way it can happen. It's the only way it can work. Well, it may be that God will always use physical, material reality and physics and chemistry. That may very well be. But whatever, whatever looks like the path forward from here, that's, that's never given by the level of knowledge I have, the level of understanding I have, the level of probability that I, that I know exists for something. That's totally irrelevant. Because if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. If God said, Abraham, you're going to have a child, you're going to have a child. But my wife can't have children. Yeah, I know. Your wife can't have children. And like, I'm really old. Yeah, you're really old. But if I say you're going to have a child, you're going to have a child. And if it has to be an unusual event, well, then I guess it'll be an unusual event. But if I tell you it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So at root, what is our belief? Our belief is that there is a God who is there, who really exists, and not only really exists, but he doesn't exist as just some sort of tangential being on the, on the edges. He exists as the one who is directing, scripting, narrating, causing, governing, every detail of everything that occurs in this reality. And since he has that kind of control and access to every square inch of this reality, there ain't nothing that he can't do. So can God keep his promises? Well, yeah, if we understand who he is, of course he can. It's not a problem to him. So as to belief, he says... We understand that the ages have been ordered by the utterance of God. 
with the consequence that what is seen is not born of things that are evident. By the way, he says, we understand that the ages have been ordered by the utterance of God. What he's really talking about here is not not rocks and stones and rivers and oceans and mountains, not things. He's talking about events. The ages is history. It's the whole story of the ages, the unfolding dynamic story that, that moves from one age to the next age to the next age and everything that transpires within it. His contention is history is ordered by the utterance of God. And so the very history of my life, the story of my life, is ordered by the utterance of God as well. Okay? Uh, Let me pause there for any questions or comments you have. Um, Maybe you want to talk about this when you get into the later stuff. I was looking at your translation, and it's come up here. You used that phrase, as to faith, rather than by faith. Oh, yeah. And you didn't explain what you mean by that phrase. Maybe that, like I say, maybe it would be better to explain it when you get to the later stuff. No, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah, most most of your translations have by faith. The the problem is you're, you're going to see in a lot of these examples it's difficult to know what it would even mean for it to say to be by faith that such and such happened. It's not the instrumentality of faith. It's not the agency of faith that he's talking about. What he's talking, it's just a matter of how you take the syntax. And the way I take the syntax is it's basically a dative of respect with respect to belief. And then he says something. Uh, and, and he starts each of these paragraphs with that same that same phrase, uh, and each time I think he means the same thing. Basically, we'd say, speaking of belief, well, there's Abel. Speaking of belief, what about that Noah? Speaking of belief, let's talk about Abraham. That I'm not sure as to belief is the mo- is the most eloquent way to translate it, but because I mean, we would have a much more idiomatic way of saying that, but I think it's something like speaking of belief or talking about belief, and then then you have a comment following that. Great, thank yeah, you. thank you. I should have commented on that. I'm not really sure how to formulate my question, but I'm when I think about making a rational decision to believe something. Um, and primarily I'm thinking of, you know, based on maybe eyewitness testimony. The trustworthiness of the eyewitness is a huge piece Mm -hmm. to my willingness to believe. Mm -hmm. So where does, and I know you've used the word chesed, the chesed of God come in here Uh, For us, it's easy to see evidence of his trustworthiness. But And so maybe as you're speaking about these early characters, how did they even have any basis whatsoever to trust God? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I don't know the answer to that. I mean, that's basically, I think, an unanswerable question. Take, Take Abel to start with. We just don't know what his experience was, but somehow these two brothers, Abel has one orientation toward God, Cain has a very different orientation toward God. Where did this come from? Now, on the one hand, we know it's a gift of God. All of sanctification in anybody who's been sanctified is a gift of God. And when God is sanctifying me, he's basically um, heightening my awareness, if you will, of the evidence that points to him so that my intelligence can take it all in and, and kind of can respond to him. The, the reason most of us don't get God is because we don't want to. We're hardened against him. We're suspicious. It's moral reasons that, that make it so we don't allow our reason to speak to us. We don't allow our intelligence full reign to just reveal what's true based on the evidence that we've taken in. Uh, it takes sanctification 
to quiet that immoral monster in us that wants to, to drown out the truth. Uh, so being the sanctified person is not getting knowledge that is not available to other people. The sanctified person is getting knowledge that's available to everyone, but he's able to hear it and see it. The, the unsanctified person is deaf and blind and uh, closed off to the evidence. So all that's to say, I don't know what that evidence is in the case of someone like Abel exactly, um, but we know from the way he responded that something was going on. He knew something about God, and he was responding out of that knowledge of God. What's even worse is Enoch, uh, which is two more after that. I mean, what, where did he get his knowledge? Was there another part of your question? Seem, it seems like there was. Oh, anyway. I guess I'm just, I guess I'm just thinking about. I can see where our modern view of faith can come into that oh, because, oh. so there's something, yeah, extra that that person had. Um, and I completely agree with you that, you know, it's not about just making this irrational leap over the chasm to get to belief in that, but, but. There does seem to be something different, just qualitatively different about that person that they're able to believe based on the same evidence everybody else has, whereas others aren't. Right. Well, okay, but it, but it is important that we see it's not that they have an ability that other people don't have. It's that they have an openness and receptivity that allows the ability that they have that everyone else has as well, but it allows that ability to... Um, result in what it ought to result in, seeing, knowing the truth, and responding to it. it. Sanctification takes away an obstacle to belief. It doesn't give us belief that nobody else has access to. It takes away the obstacle. Uh, the other thing I was going to say, you, you were commenting on, you know, we, yeah, we, we take the testimony of other people, but we weigh who the other person is, are they a liar? Then I don't trust it. Uh, I mean, I only, I only take, we learn through experience that you can't, I mean, children will accept anybody's testimony for anything. They have to learn through experience that people don't always tell them the truth, and therefore they have to, uh, they have to be careful. But the point, that, yes, you are trusting people, but the important thing is to realize that trusting people is an important part of human intelligence and the way it comes to knowledge. Can you imagine how little we would know if we never took anything on the testimony of other people? I mean, how much of education is taking people's word for it? It's huge. And as, as the philosopher Thomas Reed argued, that's built into what he calls common sense what he called the principle of credulity, that until, until we learn otherwise, we are inclined to accept what other people say about reality as true. They, they have the experience. They, the horizons of their experience are broader and different than mine. They tell me that this is the case. Okay. If they tell me that's the case, then that's the case. That's where we start as intelligent human beings. That's commonsensical is to grant that kind of authority, if you will, to the testimony of other people. But we do, over time, we learn But some people are liars, and some people have an agenda, and some people are untrustworthy for a variety of reasons, and you don't believe them. So in our adulthood, we come to realize that you have to decide whether you trust the source. Um, that's fine. But that's just part of, of the operations of human intelligence as we try to know our world. Well, that's operative with God and Jesus and the Bible and the gospel as well. Earlier, Jack, when you uh, were differentiating between faith and belief, you introduced that an intelligent thinking person would come up with a hypothesis. And in time, he would consider that apophysis with experience and, and information 
and come to the conclusion that other factors were negative, were not involved, and he then has more confidence in his hypothesis, a very scientific way of looking at things. Well, I really see that now in the second part uh, in answering Catherine's question is the, the fact uh, comes to a hypothesis and she and I look at what other people say, what facts we might uh, experience, and we reject the ones we don't believe in, the null hypothesis, and we become more and more confident. Lately, you introduced only with the confidence of, uh, of an open mind, do we get that far? I think you gave the answer to Catherine's question. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Well, let's, let's dive into the first example then that he gives. Paragraph 59. This is 11.4. As to belief, Abel offered up to God a better offering than Cain. In view of this, he was attested to be dikaios, God attesting to it on the occasion of his gifts. And through it, though he died, yet he speaks. Well, Paul points out that if we go to the, well, I mean, you remember the story. The story is that there's two brothers, Cain and Abel, are two of the children of uh, Adam and Eve. And Cain invents religion, I would argue. He, he offers up an offering to God. The offering that he offers up to God is what it is that he has produced, uh, and he's a gardener. He works with produce. So he offers up some produce to God on the altar. Abel thinks, well, that's a good idea. So Abel, who's a keeper of flocks, offers up um, his offering to God from the, the, the flock, the meat uh, offered up to God. Okay, so far so good. God accepts and has regard for the second brother, Abel's offering. He had no regard for Cain's offering. Now, why? Well, the only clue that we have in the text is in the way it describes the offering. And roughly speaking, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, I'm going by what David said when he taught this. Cain offered up some vegetables. Abel offered up the best of the choicest part of the meat of the animal. Uh, Abel took attention to give God the best. Cain gave him some vegetables. Now, the issue was not whether it was vegetables as meat. I know there are a lot of interpreters who make a big deal out of that. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't think that's right. The issue is not whether it was meat or vegetables. The issue was the heart of the offerer. What is it that led Abel to offer the best of the best of his flock? And what is it about Cain that made him slap some vegetables on the altar? Well, Abel had a perspective toward God that God deserved the highest honor that he could possibly give him. He knew that he needed to honor his creator. For some reason, that was not Cain's perspective. So God had regard for Abel's offering, but he did not have any regard for Cain's offering. And then, of course, Cain gets really ticked off. You accepted his offering, you didn't accept mine. And remember God's comment to him? Uh, I don't. <laughs> um, let's see. How's it go? Would you... Uh, if you do right, will I not something accept you or something like that? If you do right... Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, if you do well. So... Cain, it's a, your offering is not the issue. Uh, you could have offered exactly what you offered, but Cain, there's something going on inside of you that is problematic, as evidenced by the fact that you, you're ticked off 
you're upset and your countenance has fallen. I mean, Cain, you, you, are, not, you are not thinking of me and relating to me in the right kind of way. Your brother Abel is, but you're not. And then you know the rest of the story. Cain kills Abel. That's always the solution to righteous people is just kill him, get him out of the way. Um, so we see that his, his wrong insides, in his case, ultimately express themselves in a murderous rage toward, toward his righteous brother. Um, so what, as to belief, what can we learn from Abel? Belief, one of the manifestations or one of the attributes, if you will, of a heart that is open and receptive to God is that we will appreciate and value God for who he is. He's not some irrelevant story, fairy tale, legend, uh, cartoon character. God is, a very, is, is the very real author of my being, the very real author of all of history, and all things derive from him, and all things ultimately are intended to serve his purposes. If I get that, if I understand that, then I will honor him and appreciate him for who he is. And the way Abel appreciated him for who he is is when it came, if you're going to be religious, if you're going to engage in ritual, then his heart was in it. His, he, he used that ritual to express his appreciation for, his value for, and his regard for his creator. God didn't require it of him. He never commanded them to offer him an, an offering. And it wasn't about that at all. But if you're going to do it, then what are you giving expression to? What inside is affecting what you're doing on the outside? Well, Abel had this thing called belief, and that's why he acted in the way that he did. And then Paul says, in view of that, he was attested to be dikaios. Now, we don't get that from the Genesis text. I don't think we have any way of knowing that he was dikaios, given that concept that Paul has of dikaiosune. We don't know that from the Genesis text. Paul is asserting that. Abel is, is a human being in history who, along with us, is going to be accepted, that's what dikaios means, uh, the verdict that God is going to give on his life is let him into the kingdom of God. Do not punish him. Do not destroy him. Do not condemn him to death. Let him come into the kingdom of God. I will be merciful to him. Dikaios is a single word to kind of capture that whole picture. Well, Abel is among the people in history who is dikaios in the eyes of God. God attested to that on the occasion of his gifts. So what what, uh, Paul does is he links his own assessment of Abel as dikaios to the text in Genesis. God did have regard for his offering. And Paul is just reading into the significance of that. Well, what's the significance of that? The regard that he had for Abel's offering is the regard that he has for his heart of belief. And since he has a heart of belief, he is dikaios in God's eyes. And through it, uh, through that heart of belief, though he died, and that, that's an interesting comment, his belief killed him. If Abel hadn't been a believer, he wouldn't have been murdered. That, that he was murdered precisely because God had regard for his offering. Um, but as, as is going to always be true of belief, belief is going to express itself in the appropriate kind of way, no matter what the consequences. If it leads to me being killed, destroyed, murdered, because God has regard for me and not for you, so be it. 
That, that's what happened to Abel. That could very well happen to you and me. That, uh, evil people will kill righteous people just as Cain killed Abel. Why? Because Abel's deeds were righteous and Cain's deeds were evil. That's why he killed him. John, John tells us that in First, first John. So he died through these, this offering that was an expression of his faith that God had regard for. Uh, but though he died, yet he speaks. That is, in the, in the pages of Genesis, in the account of Genesis, we still see what it looks like to be a, a man or woman of belief by looking at the example of Abel. He still continues to speak to us about what it means to have the right and appropriate uh, response to God, to value him and appreciate him, acknowledge him appropriately. That's what Abel did. Okay, I need to let you go. So we begin now, until we finish 11, we're going to get example after example after example of these Old Testament figures who manifest this heart, sanctified heart, that makes them rightly oriented to God.